Well, good morning, First Baptist Church of Gray Gables. Uh, I hope you've had a wonderful, wonderful week. hope you've had an opportunity to uh, be with the Lord through His Word and through prayer and uh, ministering to others through communicating with His church this week. And we are excited about the opportunity to dive into His Word this morning. We are, of course, in First Thessalonians this morning, but we are going, uh, since we've already covered really the first 13 verses of chapter Two, through our study through chapter 1, we are going to pick up on ver- at verse 14 of chapter 2 through 16 this morning in a sermon entitled, The Jewish Opposition to the Gospel. I'm going to read, though, verse 13 through 16 of chapter 2 to get us started, and then I'm going to pray and jump in. And so we're going to cover 14 through 16, but I'm going to read uh, starting in verse 13 of chapter 2 to 16 for this morning's text. Let's read this all together now. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus, For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their prophets, and have persecuted us, and they do not please God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sin, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. First Baptist Church of Gray Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Gracious Father, we thank you that you have brought us here this morning, that Lord, as we have walked through uh, the playlist online, that we've already sung the gospel, uh, that you've encouraged and convicted us through that, that you are faithful to strengthen your people, to unite us to Christ, to the preaching of your word. And Lord, as we come to that, we beg even more of that grace that unites us to your Son by the work of your Spirit. Lord, help us to rightly understand and to rightly hear this, your holy word. You know the burden that has been on my heart as I have toiled over this passage this week. Lord, you know with what fear and uh, trepidation I now stand prepared to speak your word, prepared to deliver the truth of your message. Father, I just, I pray that this is a word that is rightly divided, that it would be a word rightly applied, and that you would be gracious to strengthen your people through it, to help us, Lord, to hear rightly that we might test and examine ourselves, that by your grace we might be found in the faith. We pray this all in the sweet and precious holy name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, now, in order to rightly understand the passage we have before us, we're going to have to step back a moment and consider the context of what we've seen so far. Uh, Really, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 2 all the way to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 16 is really one big unit. In fact, you really could take it all the way to the end of chapter 3, at least in understanding what Paul's intention here is. 
in that section, and really from chapter 1 all the way to the end of chapter 2, in this section, Paul has one specific intention, and he accomplishes that by focusing in on two aspects. Uh, The intention of Paul is simple here. Paul wants to strengthen this young congregation. Paul wants to strengthen this church. He wants to encourage them in the faith. And he's going to do that. He's going to strengthen them and encourage them by focusing in on two specific things. The first thing he focuses in on is commending them. Paul commends the church. Paul is thanking God for the progress of the gospel. We've looked at that in in much detail last week. Uh, He thanks God and he commends them for receiving the gospel as the word of God uh, himself. uh, And as they endured persecution, as the evidence of their conversion came through, Uh, their work of faith, their labor of love and perseverance and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is thanking, he's commending this church, but he's also focusing in on confirming the gospel itself. He commends the church and he confirms the gospel. That's what Paul is doing. His intention, remember, is to strengthen this young church, but he does that by commending them, thanking them, and then confirming the gospel message. We've seen that as well. Uh, Twice we see the word that Paul preached is the word of God, not the word of men, but the very word of God. We saw that in verse 13. Paul's message is true because he is a true messenger. He came in affliction and he preached in the midst of opposition with true motives and a pure heart. His life of blamelessness and righteousness was evidence to the truthfulness of his message. Well, In our passage today, what we're going to see is another line of evidence for the truthfulness of Paul's message. And really, this is getting at the main idea of our text. Uh, The line of evidence is this. The line of evidence for the truthful of Paul's message is that the Jews oppose what Paul is saying. Uh, The Jews' opposition to Paul's message is evidence of the truthfulness of the gospel. That's really our main idea here today. Now, uh, understanding this, they, they stand in opposition to Paul's message so that the churches in Thessalonica are enduring the same affliction and persecution that the churches in Judea endured. Now listen, I think initially for me this week as I read this and understood this, it was a little hard for me to see Uh, that the Jews' opposition to Paul's message was a line of evidence for the truthfulness of Paul's message. I mean, Jewish opposition in so many ways would seem to be just the opposite of that, would it not? The Jews knew the true and living God. They at least knew about him. Uh, To them belong the oracles of God. To them, God revealed himself in time and space, in redemptive history. He had spoken to them through the prophets. They were uh, the covenant of promise. How could a message that the Jews seem to so vehemently oppose be the true word of God? Uh, Furthermore, understand the context of those in the church of Thessalonica. Uh, There was relationship there with these Jews for many. Remember, the leaders in the synagogue were the same people that many of the members of this young church had gone to and listened to and loved. And now these same leaders are the ones who are opposing this new message that they received. 
Remember, the, the Jews were the very people of God. Not only did they receive the truth of God, but they belonged to him. So how could a mostly Gentile assembly be the new objects of God's favor and love? Do you feel the, the tension here? Remember, Paul came and, and he reasoned with them for three Sabbaths. That's three weeks and I think it's, it's likely that after being cast out of the synagogue that he remained and, and stayed there for a couple more weeks, but it wasn't much more than a couple. His ministry was brief. He was driven out quickly and, and had to leave this young congregation probably with many questions. But you know who stayed in Thessalonica? The Jews who opposed this message. And so, so here's Paul, he's concerned, and as he's concerned, he writes these words and he attempts to explain how the Jewish opposition just proves that my message is true. So Paul goes on to explain that several ways in verses 14 through 16. First, uh, I, I want to say here, I think Paul would imply here, I'm sure, first, that not all the Jews oppose the word of God. Not all the Jews oppose the word of God, and it's it's helpful for us to remember that. The churches, in fact, that he mentioned here in verse 14 are primarily Jewish churches. The apostles and the disciples were Jewish. The missionaries were Jewish. Paul himself was Jewish. The scriptures teach that the gospel was first received by the Jews. When Peter preached his sermon at Pentecost, 3,000 Jews first came to the faith. We read in Acts chapter 2 verse 47 as well. And the Lord added to the church daily to those who were being saved. Who was it that was being added? The Jews, the remnant, the chosen object of God's mercy and grace. And so while the Jews were opposing Paul's message, not all the Jews had rejected the Messiah. We should also keep in mind that Paul, a missionary to the Gentiles, his MO, his method of operation was still to go to the synagogues first when he arrived at a new town to preach to them Christ. So as he went from town to town in Antioch of Pisidia, we read this in Acts chapter 13, verse 43. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Many of the Jews were saved in Antioch of Pisidia, just as some Jews were saved in Thessalonica. And whether the adjective is many or it's some, it's still the same point. The Jews were being saved through the gospel. The second reason that the opposition of these Jewish people is actually evidence for the truthfulness of Paul's message is this. Uh, the Jews who oppose Paul are identified by Paul with the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. Let me say that again. The Jews who opposed Paul are identified by Paul uh, as with the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. Look at what verse 15 starts off with in this uh, very spine-chilling text. He says, "...who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us." We know that the prophets were the very mouthpiece of God. They were sent by God to speak the word of God. And when they were sent, 
time and time again, God's people rejected them. This is what the scriptures in the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish Bible teach. In fact, take 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 15 and 16, for instance. Verse 15 says, And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 30, Jeremiah being one of those prophets of the Lord, he through the Lord, the Lord says this through him, he says, in vain I have chastened your children, they receive no correction, your sword has devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. Jeffrey Wema, commentator on 1 Thessalonians, he notes this. He says, By New Testament times, therefore, the killing of the prophets had become a common way to refer to the persecution of the faithful remnant by the unrighteous. And so this language brings to mind that it's always been this way. The faithful remnant has always been persecuted by the unrighteous. In fact, what do we find Jesus teaching when we get to the New Testament? Well, in Matthew 6, we find Jesus teaching the exact same thing. He says, blessed are they, or blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then in his woe to the Pharisees, who were the Jew of Jews in many ways, in Matthew 23, look at what Jesus says to them. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore indeed I send you prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth. See, the Jewish opposition to the gospel should not have caused the Thessalonians to falter or or question the validity of Paul's message. Instead, it just confirms it. The faithful remnant has always been persecuted by the unrighteous. Always. After all, they they didn't just oppose the, the word of God proclaimed by the prophets. They opposed the word of God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look back at verse 15. It doesn't just say uh, they are those who killed the prophets, but those who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. This isn't in chronological order, obviously. This order is because of emphasis. It is, yes, bad to kill the Lord's messengers and kill the prophets, but how much worse is it to kill the Lord of glory? Isn't that what Jesus himself taught in the the parable of the, the wicked tenants? Wasn't that his point? That the owner of the vineyard had sent his messengers time and time again. And how the keepers of the vineyard, how did they treat them? Well, they 
they beat them. They drove them out, even put them to death. And so the owner of the vineyard thinks, okay, I know what I'll do. I'll send my son and, and surely they'll respect the son of, of the vineyard, the owner of the vineyard. But what happened to him? No, in that parable, they killed him also. Thinking if we kill him, we can have the vineyard to ourselves. And Jesus asked this question, what will the owner do when he comes? And the Pharisees and the scribes know the answer. He will punish them severely. And then it says in that parable in Mark 12, 12, the Pharisees and scribes knew he had spoken this parable against them. They killed the Lord of glory. Now, mind you, who killed Jesus is a complicated question. We know the Romans crucified him. We know our sins sent him to the cross. We know that it was God's will to kill Jesus, to crush him. But the scriptures are very clear that the Jews were also responsible. Peter preaches his first sermon during the Feast of Pentecost, speaking to a Jewish audience in Acts 2, and he says, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Stephen also testifies the same truth moments before the leaders of Israel kill another of the messengers of the Lord Jesus. Before they take his life, he says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom now you now have become the betrayers and murderers. Stephen says they betrayed and murdered the righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul reminded the believers in Thessalonica that the Jews who opposed their, their message stood in company with the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. Paul's message isn't less true because it's opposed by the Jewish people. It's actually the way it's always been. It's evidence that he is a true prophet of the true and living God. Well, a third reason that the opposition of the Jewish people to Paul's message should not surprise the Thessalonians is the Jewish opposition to the word of God was really opposition to all humanity really was opposition to all humanity. In fact, that's what we see at the end of verse 15 where it says, and it's contrary to all men. It opposes all men. They oppose the proclamation of the gospel. How is this opposing all men? Well, keep in mind what, what Paul writes to us in Romans chapter 10. This is a verse we know quite well, and it's an important verse. Uh, verse 13 says, Forever, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's a beautiful promise. What a tremendous promise. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And yet, the Jewish opposition is actually meant to silence the proclamation of the Lord on whom they are to call. Verse 14 says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? If they did not hear, they could not call out and be saved. Well, the Jewish people at this time were vehemently opposing the preaching of the life-giving message of the Lord Jesus. The message that is power of salvation first to the Jew, then to the Gentiles. 
The word of the cross is the power of God to those who are being saved. This is the message that was being silenced. As Jesus declared in Matthew 23, another woe to the Pharisees and scribes, he says this, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Don't miss this, church. Israel was always supposed to be pro-humanity. A new Adam in a new garden that was meant to spread the glory of God throughout the entire world. Their obedience was supposed to get the attention of the nations that the nations may look unto them and say, what wisdom you have, who else, what else kind of God so close to them uh, could, could be as, as your God? Who else could have a God like you? In fact, we see a sneak peek of this in the story of Solomon. Remember, Solomon was given the wisdom of, uh, of God and he has nations flocking to him to bask in his wisdom. Of course, that's short-lived because the nations have a greater influence on Saul than Saul has on the nations, but that's not so with Christ. The inclusion of the Gentiles, it was always clearly foreshadowed in the Hebrew Bible. This shouldn't have been a surprise to the Jewish people. There are many examples of this. Take Psalm 67, for instance. The Jews would have sung this song. It was a liturgical psalm. Israel's taught to sing this psalm, and it says, God be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us, Selah, that your way may be known on earth. Your salvation among all nations. Let the people praise you, O God. Let the people praise you. O let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on earth, Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. Then the earth shall yield her increase. God, our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. Likewise, Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. For his merciful kindness is great towards us. And the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. This is the Hebrew Bible, friends. This was not a new thing. This was always God's intention, and their opposition to Paul's message was really an opposition to all humanity because all humanity is in desperate need of the gospel of Christ. Fourth, our fourth line of evidence to see that the Jewish opposition uh, to Paul's message was actually evidence of its truthfulness is that their opposition to the gospel was ultimately opposition to God. The Jewish opposition to the gospel was opposition to God. Ultimately, the Jews who were opposed to Paul and his message, they were simply not opposing Paul. They were simply not opposing humanity. They were fighting against God. Gamaliel, a, a, a Pharisee of the Sanhedrin, when the, when the council, he warned them when they were deciding what to do with Peter and John because they were proclaiming the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Sanhedrin wanted to put a stop to it and Gamaliel stands up and, and look what he warns them. He says, he says in Acts 5, he says, And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For this, if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you be found to fight against God. Now, what do we know? 
we know by the end of Acts, this was not just the undertaking of man because Luke makes it clear that the message of the gospel has reached all the way to the heart of the known world. Uh, Paul in Acts 28, 31 was preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. If it wasn't of man, then it was of God. And if it was of God, those who were opposing it were not simply opposing some men with a funny idea, but their opposition was the opposition towards a true and living God, the one they proclaimed to serve. Fifth and finally, Paul says that the Jews who reject Jesus are ultimately rejected by God. This is important to know. The Jews who reject Jesus are ultimately rejected by God. And Paul goes on really to make three incredible, staggering statements here in verses 15 and 16. The first is that the Jews who rejected Paul's message do not please God. That's what he says in the text, isn't it? At verse 15. And they do not please God. The Jews who rejected Paul's message did not please God. There is a continuous and ongoing act of displeasing God among this. And we read this and we might be tempted to think, okay, so uh, they're not pleasing God. They should really work harder to please God. But this is much more than a slight displeasure you might have with your children if they fail to do their chores. This is covenantal language. This is profoundly significant, especially given the fact that where Paul uses the idea of not pleasing God, he uses it as the conduct and behavior of the true believer or the, uh, the not true believer. Everywhere Paul uses uh, the, the idea that you should please God, he's using it as the conduct behavior of a true believer. This is what a true believer does, friends. A true believer works to please God. And so Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In Galatians chapter 1 verse 10, Paul writes, For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. He goes on to use the same language in verse 4 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look what he says. But we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. Here's what we learn. Those who belong to God, they please God. Those who displease God do not belong to him. Those who displease God are living according to the flesh. They are worldly people who please man, not God. They do not walk in accordance with the truth of God's word. Therefore, the Jews that oppose the gospel are at enmity with God. Second, second staggering statement we see is that the, the Jews who oppose the gospel are filling up their sins. In our text, in verse uh, 16, it says they fill up the measure of their sins. When we think about this idea of filling up sins or filling up the measure of our sins, my mind goes back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 16 and 17, or 15 and 16. The Lord's talking with Abraham, uh, the father of Israel, and he says to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. And then he begins to refer to Abraham's descendants. And he says, but in the fourth generation, they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. 
not yet full. Its measure is not yet full. That's the same idea. Well, let's think about who are the Amorites, the Gentile Amorites or the Canaanites. They specifically had not filled up their iniquity so the land would not yet be taken from them and given to the children of Abraham. God's patience was revealed to Abraham in this. God explained to Abraham that his wrath and judgment would not come against the Amorites until they had filled up the measure of their sin. The picture here is of a vessel or a measuring cup with a line on it that says uh, full. And the iniquity is just filling up uh, with that cup. And when it says full, there's a corresponding cup that comes and God will pour out that wrath, that judgment upon them. So think about this. The Amorites, these godless idolaters, these children sacrificing pagans, they were storing up the measure of their sin. They were filling up wrath for themselves. And that we get, that we understand, of course they were. What we're surprised to read is that the Jews, by opposing the gospel, were actually filling up for themselves the measure of their iniquity or sins. Listen, Jesus had said to the Pharisees and scribes and what we read in Matthew 23, fill up then the measure of your father's guilt so that on them would come all the righteous blood shed on earth. And, and Paul explains in our passage in 1 Thessalonians, they were doing exactly what Jesus told them they would do. They were filling up this cup of iniquity and a full cup of iniquity, friends, is always met with a full cup of of God's wrath. Third, at the end of verse 16, our last staggering statement here, Paul makes it explicit that wrath has come at last. From Paul's perspective, the wrath of God was coming against all who opposed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The wrath of God was coming against all who opposed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That wrath would ultimately be brought to bear when Christ returns. Instead of being delivered for the wrath to come, they would be under the wrath to come. Paul is saying that the Jews who reject Jesus will not escape the anger and punishment of God. The wrath of God has come upon them. Now, listen, the problem with a message like this is that throughout church history, and in fact, church history itself is littered with anti-Semitism. It's unfortunate. In fact, there have been so many misunderstandings about the New Testament church's relationship to the Jewish people. And this has actually been just increased in our own day because what we've done is we've had a pendulum swinging in the other direction because of dispensationalism that, that sees Israel, the geo-national political entity of Israel, in some way being favored by God because of their nationality. Listen, what I'm saying here this morning, it's not an anti-Semitic message. This is a pro-Jesus message. It's the same message that Paul's actually given here in the text in Thessalonians, which is why I felt compelled to give it this morning. Paul yearned to see his people, the Jewish people, saved. He desired to see them come to know Christ. He longed for it. Yet it is clear those who reject Christ ultimately fall out of covenant community or never enter into the new covenant that's available in Christ. Uh, and listen, there are so many things that, 
uh, that could probably and should probably be said here, uh, but I want to be brief and I want to be clear, neither of which I'm very good at. But here's the crux of the matter. I want you to hear this. God has never abandoned Israel. God has never abandoned Israel because Christ is Israel. Uh, Christ is the true and better Israel. That's communicated a thousand different ways in the gospel. Jesus is Israel and those who are not in him, as Paul says, are not Israel. Uh, for us, though, uh, think about this. What do we do now with this in 2020? How do we apply this to the church? Well, I'm going to say two things. I think in this passage we find primarily a call to persevere in the faith, but I think we also implicitly find a warning. Everywhere Paul goes where he addresses what is being taken place through the Jews, he tags on this warning. And so I'm going to tag it on here. The Jews had the advantage of having this special revelation of God, the Hebrew Scriptures. We know that. That was an advantage that they had. They had the Hebrew Scriptures. They were given the prophets and the special presence of God through the temple. That was an advantage. The Jews were the object of God's covenantal kindness and care. Is everyone with me? Yet in the end... All of those advantages did not benefit them at all. That was the whole point of the first half of Romans 3. Advantage, yes, in so many ways uh, they had the advantage. Benefit, no, none. Advantage, yes. Benefit, no. As Paul wrote in Romans eleven seven, 7, Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blind. Here's our warning. Do not think your gospel advantages are enough. Do not think that your gospel advantages are enough. How do we apply this to us today? It, it's, it's simple. Do not think that simply because you have God's special revelation in the word of God that you're okay. The Jewish people knew the Hebrew scriptures. It was an advantage to them, but it did not benefit them. Don't think just because you listen to preachers and attend church that you're okay. They attended the synagogue regularly. They were faithful, advantageous, yes, beneficial, not in itself. Children who are listening to this, don't think that just because you grow up in a Christian family that you're okay. That somehow, because your parents love and follow Jesus, you automatically get a free ticket into heaven. Advantageous? Yes, praise God, you're in a Christian home. Beneficial? Ultimately not in itself. Don't think for any second that any of these things are capable of saving you. Don't think lightly of your sin. Don't think lightly of the grace and mercy of God. Hear the warning in this. Anywhere we read about the Jews being handed over and placed under the wrath of God, it should send chills down our spine. Second, uh, the second thing we can take away from this is, is Paul not only gives a warning, he also gives a call here. Because at the end of the day, even the opposition of the Jews is evidence that Paul's message is true. And so Paul's call is clear. Jesus is able to deliver us from the coming wrath. So trust him. Trust in Jesus. 
Turn to him. Serve the living and true God. This should strengthen our faith. Listen, there is no other way. Jesus has always been plan A. It's always been one way. There is not one way of salvation, but then depending on your people group or nationality, you may have a different way of achieving salvation. No, it's Christ and Christ alone. He's the only way for salvation. He was speaking to Jews when John 14, 6 was said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Listen, the message of the cross, it may be a stumbling block for the Jew or foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those who are being saved, the message of the cross is the power of God unto salvation, both to the Jew and the Gentile. What the Jew needs is the same thing that the Gentile needs. The proclamation of the Jewish Messiah who has lived a perfectly righteous life, accomplishing that which God required in order to establish a new covenant, ultimately laying down his life that he might become the perfect substitutionary sacrifice to take away the sins of God's people forever and ever. So in him we stand, Jew and Gentile. Gentiles don't have to become Jewish. Jewish people don't have to become Gentiles. In fact, in Christ, you're neither. It's just Christ. He's the only way of salvation. I pray that takes resonance with you as we understand this. We have a history of of misunderstanding our relationship to the Jewish people who reject the Messiah. We we tend to think that for some reason at the end or eschatologically in the study of Revelation that they will be saved just because they are in Israel. Friends, no one will ever be saved without repenting and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. That and that alone is the only way that you can be saved. I pray that we would understand this and it would cause us to Understand that our relationship right now to the Jews who reject Jesus is to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with them so that they may be saved as well. I hope you are encouraged and your faith is strengthened. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, gracious Father, simply if I've misspoken, please, Lord, remove it from the hearing of your people, from the hearts of your people. But, Father, if I've rightly spoken, what Paul at first wrote to the church at Thessalonica Lord, would you be gracious to help us apply it? Would we hear the warning here, not to take anything for granted, but instead with great humility to embrace the salvation that we have in and through your Son, Jesus Christ, the only way of salvation for all men. There is no other. He alone is our hope, Father. Help us to stand in him, to be strengthened in the faith, to be honored and glorified in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The invitation is clear this morning, friends. If, if you're here and you don't know the Lord Jesus, maybe, maybe you've grown up in church. Maybe you've had the Bible. You've read the Bible. Maybe uh, your family raised you in church. Uh, but friends, that is advantageous. All those things are good, yes. But if you personally have never received the gift of eternal life that was purchased for you by Jesus Christ on the cross, then then my prayer is that today you would simply uh, bow your knees and you would give your heart and life over to him. You would trust in him and his finished work on the cross completely for your salvation, that you would simply call on to him, dear Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And you would get to experience the true benefit of knowing and resting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, And for us as as a church body, it uh, 
the prayer is that our, our theology would continue to be strengthened and encouraged and we would, uh, we would have peace in knowing there is simply only one way of salvation. We would be beacons of light about that one way and we would proclaim it to the ends of the earth, to Jew and to Gentile, that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. I hope you have a wonderful week, church family. Please call us or text us if we can do anything for you in any way, shape, or form. Uh, I look forward to hopefully seeing you soon. God bless you.